Today, we're going to finish this top tier of this uh, trilogy that we're in this year called Deeper, Wider, Higher. So the deeper element has been diving deeper into some of the stories that uh, we find in the Old Testament and New Testament. Today is the 14th message uh, in this part. Uh, we could keep going the rest of the year and into next year. There's so many stories in the Bible, but I wanted to get to the next level. And next week, we're going to start wider. Now, what that is, is for the next eight weeks or so, we're going to ask some very deep and penetrating questions. If stories, if stories... Uh, inform us in some way or give to us wisdom in some way, questions actually enlarge us. We get a better understanding of things. So next week, we're going to start this series with a message, where did it all begin? Have you ever laid uh, outside on your, your uh, lawn chair and look up into the sky and you see the immense universe that's above us there and ever asked yourself, how did this all come to be? Where did it all begin? So we're going to ask those type of questions, okay? Some very deep questions that sometimes trouble some people, but those are the type of things that enlarge us to see the world a little bit bigger than we often do through the peephole of Christianity. So we're going to be looking at other things besides just the scripture. We're going to look at what science has to say. We're going to look at what other religions have to say about these deep questions and how they approach them and and how do they attempt to get to some type of answer on that type of thing. And then uh, after that, so in a few months, we'll go to higher and we're going to take a look at some of the portions of the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, which is his primary teaching component uh, that we find in the Gospels. So today, let's talk about the couple of passages of Scripture I read a moment ago. It has been said that last words are lasting words, that someone who is about ready to depart from this planet usually has insight and wisdom, and as they speak, we should sit up and take notice. Well, Jesus, as he is about ready to ascend back into heaven, Acts chapter 1, he looks at his disciples and he says, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to teach and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is often called the Great Commission. It has been for uh, centuries, the cornerstone of world missions, and it in particular is um, important to the evangelical arm of Christianity that we are to go into all the world and somehow convert the rest of the world into believing the way we believe. Now, for years and years and years, this was kind of the cornerstone for many people who felt a calling by God to go into a foreign culture, to learn a foreign language, to try to convert other people to Christianity. And I want to ask the question today, is that what Jesus is asking us to do? Or is there something more that is going on in the text? So, Just like this, here we're diving a little bit deeper from swimmer level 
uh, to, you know, uh, scuba dive level. And so here we find in the book of Matthew that Jesus tells his disciples that they are to go to Galilee. And this is north. So Jerusalem, you have the Jordan River, and then Galilee to the north. And to wait there for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he says to them, once they are in Galilee, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission could also be entitled something else. It could also be entitled the Great Admission. Now here's what I mean by that. When you look at this passage of Scripture, are we talking about this commission that Jesus is on board with us to go out and to try to convert people? Or is it the great permission to go beyond the boundaries that once was set? Or is it the great admission that there are things that has happened because of this being misapplied. So I'm going to call this the great admission for a moment. And the reason is because this particular passage of scripture has often been used as a proof text um, to go and invade other lands and convert people to Christianity. The problem is this. Over the courses of, uh, course of the centuries, there have been a lot of atrocities that have been done the Crusades, uh, uh, other things like that over the last couple thousand years. And it's almost as if the interpretation of this is, hey, I want you to become like an invasive species that comes in and takes over. And you are to somehow change the entire culture of other people that live in other parts of the world. This has often been the way it's been interpreted. Unfortunately, what comes with that is forced conversions, colonization, the doctrine of discovery, even the entire Christian industrial complex, if you will, is all rooted into this particular understanding of the command of Jesus. And you should do it if you don't, God's going to be out to get you because you haven't followed this command. And when I was in school, this emphasis on foreign missions was so high that such guilt was placed upon the student body to say, hey, unless God tells you not to go, you should be out on the foreign mission field somewhere. That's a lot of pressure because some people are not wired to go into other cultures. Some people are not wired to learn other languages. And yet there's this guilt that is sometimes placed upon people. And what often happens then is a particular type of Christian gets elevated. They get elevated kind of to a second tier to say, look at these people. They left everything. They went around the world and they did all of this. And it seems to me that sometimes what happens is then there's pressure on that person that has 
made a commitment to go somewhere else in the world and share the good news, to come back with a report that all these people have been converted. It's almost as if a body count needs to be given to uh, people that are supporting that. So foreign missions, a lot of times, is all about the pressure to raise funds to go to language school, and then to go to the foreign mission field, and then to come back and to tell people that are giving their hard-earned money that their investment is worth it. Are you following what I'm saying? I kind of think that's really messed up in terms of the way this particular uh, passage of Scripture is interpreted. Now, the other problem is this. When people go into other parts of the world many times, what they do is they go, we got everything right. And if you want to be right with God, you got to believe exactly like we believe. You know, so there's this pressure that is often put upon those people that sometimes need the help of missionaries for various reasons uh, to come into help medically or to help with other things that they don't have in their culture. And then they're put under the pressure that if they're going to continue to have this help from the great white evangelical movement in, in the West, then they need to believe exactly the way this missionary believes. Do you get the scenario here? And I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. Um, In her remarkable book, Silver, Sword, and Stone, Three Crucibles in the Latin American Story, Marie Arana summarizes and reviews the tortured history of Latin America since the arrival of the first Europeans. And the three components that she talks about in her book are silver, the passionate and ruthless drive for gold, sword, an intense readiness for brutal violence, and stone, the powerful grip of the church in and early organized religion as an ideological justification for greed. So silver, sword, and stone. Now, that brings me back to this story about um, the torch in the bucket. The torch in the bucket is this fear and reward element that when we hear these words from Jesus, are we doing it out of fear? Are we doing it because we want some type of reward? You know, some people obey God out of fear because their only picture of God is of a punishing judge. And they fear, depending upon what version of Christianity they come from, they fear being burned alive forever in some type of everlasting hell. And all of this darkens their heart and distorts their spirit. How can you even love a God like that? How can you even love a God that is going to torture people for eternity? And so salvation, or the good news, is simply a fire insurance plan to safeguard a soul. Oh, so what happens then is, okay, then who's in and who's out? And all of a sudden, faith becomes um, this, who deserves to be burned in hell, and who doesn't deserve to be burned in hell? Well, you have to have the right affirmation of the right doctrine, or pray the right prayer, or perform the right rituals. So that's one group of people. The other group of people is serving God for reward. 
Um, they think that, you know, uh, without a doubt, God will elevate them and promote them. And uh, this is a grand upgrade uh, because God is going to uh, get, make them healthy and wealthy along the way because they are serving God. And that's why Teresa of Avila says, I wish I could burn that down. I wish I could douse the flames of that. Because God is worthy of love and service simply because he is a God of love, unconditionally. That he is a God that loves you from your first breath to your last breath. That he is a God that, whose deep, deep love is beyond anything that we can comprehend. Now there's a lot of mysteries in the world and we don't understand why certain things happen to certain people. But that does not diminish the attribute of God's love. God's benevolence, his mercy, his compassion should, if we experience it, begin to change and transform our heart. Jesus, in John chapter 17, verse 3, uh, says eternal life is to experience the eternal love of God. This is what he prays in John 17. This is called the... Uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now this is eternal life. God, he is praying to God, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is the embodiment of God. Jesus is what God is like. And so we see this and we then begin to say, I can love a God that looks like Jesus, right? I can love a God that has the type of attributes that is displayed in Christ's earthly ministry. And we're going to see that in just a second. So what do we need to do here? Well, we need first to understand the context. The context here in Matthew chapter 28 is post-resurrection. So the two Marys go to the tomb to uh, embalm the body and uh, put out spices and, and that type of thing. And when they arrive at the tomb... The stone has been rolled away and the body's gone. An angel is there and says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And then Jesus appears and he shows himself to Mary and she runs back and she tells the other disciples that Jesus is alive. And it's from there they go to Galilee, and it's from there that Jesus appears and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into all the nations, and I want you to teach them and baptize them. Well, there's an interesting little phrase here. It says that when they went into Galilee, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? Some doubted. I mean, if you saw the living Christ right in front of you, why would you doubt? Right? You know why you would doubt? Because you're human. We constantly live between faith and doubt every moment that we're alive. And so as they doubt, yet at the same time they step out in faith, and that's the story of the book of Acts. They go and they begin to reach out to other people and tell them the good news. Now, that brings me to the first passage that I read for you. Something changes in the book of Matthew. So Jesus sends these same disciples out, 
right? But not to everyone. Not to everyone. Just to Jewish people. Because that's the standard operating procedure. If you want to know God, you need to become Jewish, right? And there were Gentiles that became Jewish and so forth. But something changed between chapter 10 when he tells them to go out and to perform miracles and to heal the sick and raise the dead and so on and so forth. But it's a limited scope. Now all of a sudden, go anywhere and everywhere. What happened? What changed? Well, there is this passage I didn't read for you. And I want you to hear it. So in chapter 15, Jesus has an experience. And the experience is with a Canaanite woman. Those dreaded Canaanites. Those hated Canaanites. That group of people that in the Old Testament, Joshua was told, after Moses had died, Joshua was told to exterminate these people. Kill all of them. Men and women, boys and girls, and even the livestock. Go back and read Joshua. Now, here is Jesus. And it says in verse 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Get rid of this Canaanite woman. Just send her back. We're not concerned about that. Well, why are they saying that? Well, Jesus just told them, right? He just told them, don't worry about the Gentiles. Don't worry about the Samaritans. All, all about Jewish people. And then Jesus speaks up and he says, two her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Why are you coming to me? I'm basically the Messiah for the Jewish people. And then the woman came and fell on her knees before Jesus and said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And Jesus is still rather rigid. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. It's not right for me to give you what uh, belongs to these people, the Jewish people again. And then this woman speaks up. And she says, yes it is. Oh, yes it is, Lord. Can you imagine the boldness of that? Yes it is, Lord. Even the Dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Would you have the nerve to say that to Jesus? She did. Now notice what Jesus does. Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. You have great faith. Now we fast forward. 
And we come back to Matthew chapter 28. And the great admission is this. Yeah, there's been a lot of things that have been done tragically because of the misappropriation of this verse. But the great admission is also Jesus is now saying this good news it's not just for Jews alone. It's for the whole world. It's for every Gentile and every Canaanite. It's for everyone. You're my disciples. Go out and tell it. This God who loves people that started with his people, the Jewish people, he loves everyone. The kingdom is at hand. Wow. That's what the Great Commission is. It's the elevation of all people as objects of God's love and it becomes crystal clear that we are not to carve up the world into insiders and outsiders. You know, when we send missionaries out, and it's a good work to have people go and to help and serve other people around the world, it's a wonderful thing. But, if they go out and serve thinking that they're the insider and the rest are outsiders, or if they think that they're better than other people, they might as well stay home. Right? They might as well stay home. The love of God is bigger than any boundaries. And maybe, just maybe, what the Great Commission is all about is on the way. The Great Commission, wherever we go in this world, whether it's into your neighborhood or into your workplace, or if you happen to go around the world, it's more about conversation than forced conversion. It's about conversation with other people saying, God loves us all. And I know that maybe you need and I need help in that process. Because I believe and yet I doubt, just like the disciples, even after the resurrection. And what we need to do is remember that God is bigger than the way we understand him. And we need to be careful that we don't reduce discipleship into accepted slogans or simplistic answers. Jesus did not commission us to go into the world as sloganeers or salesmen. He commissions us to be real people with real problems, real people with both faith and doubt at the same time, who are conversing with other people with a genuine love in our heart for other people and allowing the Holy Spirit to do the rest. Because some people need that hope, but it's not going to happen overnight, and it's certainly not as simple as, are you going to sign on the dotted line now? That seems to me to be so used car salesman-like. You need to sign today. Pretending also to have simple and glib answers to existential questions is not really carrying out the Great Commission. It's about struggle. It's about learning. It's about stretching. It's about growing wider in our understanding of other people and the world around us. 
And then when we can love and serve people with full knowledge that we're not trying to make them Westerners. We're not trying to make them Americans. We're not trying to make them in other parts of the world just like us. They have their own cultures. They have their own values. They have their own rituals. They have their own things that they should keep. They shouldn't be stripped from them. But it's, these are the things that we can do in conversation with other people. Tell me a little bit about how you see this, how you understand that. Tell me a little bit more about how you see God and, and if they're of, of a different world religion, how that fits into that as well. We need to grow wider. That's what we need to think about. And then I think we can genuinely express love. So that brings us back to St. Teresa of Avila. I think she's on to something. Maybe if we quit being pressured by fear or reward, but we serve out of love, ah, maybe that is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Stand with me as we'll close. Lord, we thank you that Jesus gave this commission, this commission, this permission, Yes, and even this admission that all people are objects of God's love. And we thank you that we have this opportunity that as we go, we can be the incarnation of your love in our life. May that tr be true today and into the week and months and years ahead. We thank you that we have a message to share that Jesus is risen from the dead and has conquered death and hate and sorrow. And yet we live within that mystery of not having everything reconciled yet. And so we believe and we doubt. And we say with that father so long ago when he appeared before Jesus and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. We ask that you'll do the same in our heart. Because you made this promise to us that you will be with us to the end of the age. And if you're going to be with us to the end of the age, certainly you're going to be with us to the end of anything that we face today or into the weeks ahead. May we be filled to the brim with your love. And may we overflow to others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for your attention. I hope you have a great week, everyone. God bless you.